You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Ron. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Good. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Wright Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Ron, or Ronald, as your byline would have it, purser. You're a professor of management at San Francisco State University and the author of a new book called McMindfulness, How Mindfulness Became the New Capitalist Spirituality. Uh, you have some criticisms about the way mindfulness is being taught and practiced in some corners and some, some criticisms of what you call the mindfulness movement. Um, one thing that's interesting about your approach to me is that, you know, mindfulness has become this very big thing. And it is subject to a certain number of kind of snide dismissals by people who aren't really all that familiar with how it's being taught, much less with the Buddhist uh, context in which it arose and, and where it stands within the framework of Buddhist ideas. You don't fall into that category. You actually uh, have been a, a practitioner of Buddhist meditation for some time, I gather, um, and you are conversant in, you know, Buddhist uh, philosophy and Buddhist texts, even though it's not your academic specialty. Again, you're, you're a professor of management. Uh, you, may, you may bring it in. I, I'm not sure. Do you bring it in to your uh, management teaching at all, uh, the Buddhism? Not really. Not, not right now because I'm teaching a very large uh, introductory course to management. Yeah, and my, you might not be well received if you told them all to uh, yeah. close their eyes and focus on their breath. The, the, um, so, but anyway, it, it is, it isn't, it isn't just uh, a kind of a snide and uninformed dismissal. Um, and before we, before we get into what, what your criticisms are, why don't we first talk, we'll first talk a little about your own, um, history. Now you, I gather you practice mainly in the Zen tradition. Is that accurate or not? Uh, I have parallel. Uh, tracks, um, okay. like like many other people, I'm I'm not uh, fundamentally uh, glued into one uh, tradition. Okay, um, I say my history was really more. Uh, well, it's unusual. Uh, even though I started uh, at the Tibetan Nigma Institute in Berkeley, uh, which was started by uh, a Tibetan Lama Tarthing Tuku, uh, he came to the United States in 1968 and established that center there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, uh, in my late 20s, when I was an undergraduate, uh, discovered I had a book on my shelf um, that had been sitting there for a few years, and it was daunting. It was uh, called Time, Space, and Knowledge, A New Vision of Reality. That sounds pretty daunting, yeah. It who, is daunting. Who, who, wrote, who wrote it? Do you remember? Tarthing Tuku, who, oh, okay. who, who, who established the center. Uh, he stopped teaching publicly um, in 1979, so by the time I had arrived. It was already around 1982. Mm -hmm. Um, But I started taking courses in this particular teaching of his, which incidentally is, uh, he's adamant that it's not Buddhist. Um, There's no Buddhist terminology in the book. So it was his kind of unique gift to the West. Uh, uh, It's a visionary teaching. Uh, The the terms time, space, and knowledge do have that Western resonance, right? You yeah, know, I, think, I think all three and, of those things are recognized in the East, but sure. Yeah. Well, anyway, make the long, long story short. So that's uh, that's where I started, even though I did take courses in some Nygma psychology and, and 
other sorts of more traditional uh, retreats and things like that. Okay. Uh, but it was almost out of necessity when I moved to graduate school. There was I had to move to Cleveland, Ohio, and uh, it's not really the mecca for Buddhist centers there at the time. And the only uh, center there was uh, the Buddhist Churches of America, which is an ethnic uh, Japanese Buddhist uh, so, congregation. So, so prob- probably very religious and probably not so much meditation, right? Well, except that the teacher uh, in the evenings w- was teaching Western students Soto Zen. Okay. So that was my first introduction to Zen. Uh, and then more recently, uh, I started uh, studying uh, with Jongmei Park, Reverend Jongmei Park, who is in the Korean Taigo order. Um, uh, although I don't have my own sangha, or I don't have my own Buddhist center or anything like that. Okay, that you that you regularly kind of uh, right. patronize. So let me ask you, um, for people, you know, I'm I'm sure there are people out there listening to us who have heard the term mindfulness. They may have heard, they probably heard phrases associated with the kind of mainstream contemporary manifestations of mindfulness, like living in the moment or something or being in the present. Uh, why don't you um, tell us what, how you think of mindfulness as you would like it to be thought of and taught. In other words, mindfulness in its authentic Buddhist context text as you, as you see it. What what and this is for somebody who 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 hasn't meditated who you know uh, how would you kind of define the term? Well, I, I would go back to the classic uh, uh, definition and and meaning of mindfulness. Uh, it's an English word, of course, as you know, and it was translated from the Pali term uh, sati uh, by T. Riz Davids, who was a, a Welsh uh, Oriental scholar in the nineteenth century who was living in Ceylon. And he was really struggling with uh, trying to find the right translation. And some sort of Christian Anglican prayer came to him, uh, be mindful of the needs of others. That was kind of the, the trigger for him. Uh, but it, the earliest recorded teachings of Sati has more to do with the ability to recall, bring to mind, uh, remembering, uh, recollecting uh, certain reflections, uh, certain guidances, instructions, uh, even doctrines. Uh, so out of the classic Satipatthana Sutra, which is the foundations for establishing mindfulness, core teaching in the Pali uh, Theravada tradition, um, there's really no mention of being in the present moment uh, right. or bare attention, non-judgmental awareness. And I thought to say you wouldn't develop presence or cultivation of presence through the classical form of uh, mindfulness. Right, um, because because the sutra does instruct you to Go mm-hmm. through and kind of observe, you might say, these various things, things in your body, bodily mm-hmm. sensations, your, you know, kind of thoughts and feeling tone and so on. So it is about being aware. Now, now one, one uh, you, you made an interesting point that uh, although, um, you know, when people ask, well, how might Reese Davids have translated, what other word might he have chosen for Sati? I mean, you know, it was his decision. It was a seminal decision to use the term my, mindfulness. That's it caught on. What other terms might he have used? Awareness, maybe. What's that? Yeah, I was going to say, people often say awareness, conceivably attention. But as you know, the word mindfulness, when when scholars look into the way, uh, uh, sati, the term translated as mindfulness, I mean, when they look into the way it was being used around that time, there is a strong connotation of memory, of remembering. So are you, and and, you know, I think people have different ideas, even scholars about how we should 
integrate that, if at all, into our understanding of what mindfulness was supposed to be. Do you it's have conte- a take? It's contested. A- yeah, it's contested even in scholarly circles, and, right? And so what yeah. is your view? It sounds like you would like for this idea of memory to play a stronger role in the way we think of what mindfulness should be. Is that, can you, uh, if so, can you elaborate on that? I'm not so sure if I'm actually saying that. Um, I think one of the points that uh, I'd like to make is I'm not really advocating that we should return to some sort of pure, uh, authentic, unchanging form mm-hmm. uh, from the past, uh, as if there's uh, like this is the fundamental teaching of all of Buddhism. I'm not really saying that, um, but I think um, I think some things have been uh, uh, left out or uh, uh, minimized. Um, and this is an interesting one, I think. In order to bring mindfulness into the secular world, uh, you know, you don't really hear a lot about the teachings on anatta uh, or no self. Right. Uh, this is sort of the wisdom side of that, mindfulness. That, that being the idea that the self, as we think of it, is an illusion. It doesn't really, in some, in some sense, it doesn't really exist. Yeah, the way that it appears is not the way it actually is. Uh, so conventionally, yeah, sure, it's it's there and, and it's useful. But um, I, I think the point I'm trying to make is that uh, if we look at the three uh, trainings, uh, ethics, uh, meditation, and wisdom, uh, to some degree, uh, the ethics have, have been downplayed. But I think even more uh, uh, downplayed is the wisdom side. Uh, now, if if mindfulness is, is um, secularized, it's been uh, converted – uh, uh, into a clinical therapeutic uh, 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 modality. Uh, so the purpose, as it's been uh, uh, disseminated, is not necessarily for awakening or for deep existential transformation. Uh, because we, as you well know, a lot of people who have ventured into even secular clinical forms of mindfulness, maybe they were predisposed, but they're, they've been thrown into uh, sometimes uh, some very adverse uh, uh, experiences because perhaps they were touching the wisdom side of, of mm-hmm. mindfulness, where their sense of self was suddenly unsettled. Uh, I don't know if we want to go there. I'm not really an expert on the adverse effects of mindfulness. But the point I'm making, I think, is that I think there's some value into uh, reintegrating the ethics and the wisdom side uh, of mindfulness. Uh, but I think we have to be careful to differentiate it from therapeutic uh, forms of mindfulness. Right. Now, maybe, so maybe we should kind of review a little how mindfulness came to America in a sense, because I mean, there are these different manifestations of it. So, you know, my, my, um, my perhaps too simple idea about how Buddhism came to America is kind of Zen came to the West Coast. Yeah. Tibetan came in, in, in the West, including Colorado, including maybe California, I don't know, but Tibetan kind of showed up. And then the third main strand is Theravadan and specifically kind of Vipassana meditation, which is closely related to mindfulness. We can think of it for our purposes as mindfulness, maybe. And that came more in the East Coast via a couple of institutions. I think there are the Goenka retreats, as you know. And then there's the Insight Meditation Society founded by Joseph Goldstein, uh, Sharon Salzberg, and... um, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm blanking. The guy who then founded Spirit Rock in uh, Jack Jack Cornfield, yeah, Jack Cornfield, and, and so, um, 
so, 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 and I think a lot of people, including me, have their exposure to mindfulness via the Insight Meditation Society, where I did, I've done a number of retreats. I did my first retreat. Um, now, but then separate from that, um, because I want to get clear on what is the main focal point of your critique, which manifestations. Now, separate from that, as you note, you know, in, in your book, there's John Kabat-Zinn, and I've had a conversation with him on the site. People can Google it who came up with this idea of mindfulness-based stress reduction, a therapeutic thing. And and although he actually had his big epiphany about it at Insight Meditation Society and yeah. and, and was and was conversant in, in the Buddhist context, he chose to sever uh, this, this thing, mindfulness-based stress reduction, from the Buddhist context so that it would be more widely accepted in medical institutions, maybe in schools and so on, right? So far, does all of this kind of make sense to you? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, there's other scholars that have done uh, uh, much more in-depth work than me. Uh, they're Buddhist religious studies scholars like uh, Jeff Wilson's book, uh, Mindful America, and uh, uh, David McMahon's book, The Making of Buddhist Modernism. But let me back up a bit. Um, you know, one of the things that um, we shouldn't lo- um, overlook is that uh, ethnic uh, ethnic Buddhists were here uh, many, many years ago. Sure. Uh, and, uh, so we're talking about the Buddhist churches of America, uh, the Pure Land, uh, mm-hmm. interestingly enough, the Pure Land Buddhists don't meditate at all. Uh, well, in general, wouldn't you say that a yeah. common misunderstanding about Buddhism is that it's, it, it's mainly about meditation in Asia. Most Buddhists don't meditate. A lot of monks don't meditate. Absolutely. And, and that, you, yeah, you were pointing to the Theravada revival movement in the uh, late 19th century when, uh, British uh, colonialists were occupying uh, Burma and Thailand, particularly mm-hmm. Burma, right? Mm-hmm. And so it, it was a political strategy and uh, to preserve uh, to preserve Buddhist religion uh, by opening it up to the lay uh, lay people. It's a mass right. meditation movement, and it was modernized in the sense that uh, it had to appeal to Western sensibilities. So now it became kind of uh, reframed as a science of mind. And uh, we're doing away with the rituals. We're doing away with all kinds of other, like, uh, so-called superstitious cultural baggage kinds of things um, to make it uh, appear more rational than even Christianity, because Christian missionaries were uh, also there. And uh, the elders uh, in Burma uh, saw the handwriting on the wall, and that's uh, that was kind of a, a political form of resistance in some ways. Uh, to uh, open it up, but uh, make a long story short. So as you said, uh, Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg and uh, Joseph Goldstein, they, they learned this form of uh, modern uh, Buddhism or Protestant they, Buddhism. They came largely out of Burma. Came largely out of Burma and Thailand, particularly. Which was, which was kind of the one place in Asia where meditation had become a lay right. for reasons you described. It was interesting. I mean, uh, in reaction, as you said, in reaction against colonial occupation, yeah. in order to revive a a kind of a nationalist spirit, you might say, revive mm-hmm. uh, grassroots attachment to indigenous traditions. They they uh, there's one guy in particular whose name I forget who went around, you know, who, who made a big deal of like emphasizing the importance of meditating and so on. Yeah, yeah. I think it was Letty Sayadaw. That's right. That's right. Uh, Eric Braun wrote a remarkable book on him uh, called The Birth of Insight. Right, uh, really That's chronicling right. I've, I've that. Had him on. I've had I've had him on too, and people. Oh, great! Yeah. So, um, so anyway, the, it's interesting that the West, in a certain sense, 
helped create a tradition of indigenous Asian lay meditation. <laughs> yeah. And then that, in one sense, the colonial occupation, then, then that tradition uh, wound up, uh, you know, obliquely on the eastern shores of the United States where uh, a version of it kind of established a beachhead. And that's where a lot of the mindfulness that Americans encounter springs from, however much it may have changed since then. But that happened in the 70s. And so here we are. Mm-hmm. So is your critique, I, I, part of your critique is certainly, I mean, let's, let's, let's start where I think it's most, pr- your critique is most pronounced, which is the just plainly corporate teaching of mindfulness as like a corporate tool, as you would see it, right? It's like, it's like this can help you become a better capitalist, a more efficient worker. It can alleviate the stress that the capitalist system induces. That's one, and, and this has become kind of big in Silicon Valley, and this is one thing you're criticizing, right? Yeah, it, that's, you know, also because I'm a professor of management, I, I think, and I used to do a lot of organizational management consulting back in the day, and so I was kind of aware of that world, and uh, yeah, when it came on my radar, I started paying attention to it in the early days. This is before uh, Google uh, created the Search Inside Yourself program. Uh, in the early days, they were uh, bringing in quite a few people and giving talks and things like this. Um, but yeah, absolutely right. Um, I, 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 I have a real uh, concern about corporate mindfulness programs. Um, and I'd like to, to, to say that it's kind of part of a broader umbrella of, of the wellness industry. Um, there's a lot of talk about positive psychology uh, happiness and resilience. And I see corporate mindfulness as sort of like uh, close cousins of, of these other initiatives. And um, there's something that I think is common to all of them is that um, it places sort of the burden of change on the individual. Uh, in other words, that managing stress, the idea that that's the problem, it's not a symptom of larger structural and systemic issues in the workplace. So it individualizes uh, a lot of corporate uh, toxic uh, corporate cultures or uh, corporate policies, heavy workloads. All of these are more structural issues within the corporation. And that is um, uh, a technique then that reduces stress to an individualized problem. Uh, And I think it's part of the larger therapeutic cultures uh, in a way. It's sort of the marriage of uh, these approaches to uh, self-discipline and therapy. Uh, So it's not just corporate mindfulness. It's also other programs too that do the same thing. So I don't want to put all the blame on corporate mindfulness. I think it's part of some sort of Mm -hmm. neoliberal sort of uh, ethos, which uh, uh, reduces all uh, problems to the individual and then puts puts the burden on the individual then to adapt and to adjust uh, to the, to these conditions. So, so you would rather see focus on changing the system that creates the problems such as stress. And you think that addressing stress in the kind of secular therapeutic way it can be addressed through mindfulness kind of takes people's eye off the ball that they, 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 because it, it, it gives them a way to adjust to the system, then the system doesn't get adjusted. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. And um, I mean, we have to keep in mind that corporate mindfulness programs are initiatives taken up by management. 
they're not employee driven or they're not organizing these programs. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah. And, you know, I think it's the, the discourse is, is already delimited. The discourse in these curriculums are already delimiting what you can talk about, what you can diagnose, what you can, uh, analyze in terms of uh, the, the source, the workplace stressors in, in corporate in corporations. You know, there's been some really good studies on workplace stressors uh, coming out of Stanford, and uh, they're, they're systemic structural issues. Uh, you know, job insecurity, uh, not having adequate uh, health care, heavy workloads, unrealistic job demands. Uh, you know, they're not individualized uh, problems. And so I think that what happens is that uh, the stress discourse is biomedical, comes out of a biomedical paradigm. Mm-hmm. And once you uh, kind of limit uh, ex- the explanations of stress or distress to biological or even psychological reasons, then you've already kind of ruled out other uh, uh, possible alternative ways of intervening. Uh, in these kinds of uh, systems, you've kind of ruled out more collective social change uh, uh, possibilities because these are very individualized interventions. Um, and, and rightly so. I mean, uh, management-based, interv- uh, ma- mindfulness-based interventions uh, uh, are not designed for social or political change. They're designed uh, as kind of a therapeutic uh, form of, uh, of relief. Well, in your view, they're, they're in some case, in some context, at least, uh, in some sense, designed to sustain the system. I mean, not only not designed to change. I mean, I mean, you, I, I, I guess I'm not sure to what extent you think it's a conscious kind of plot, you know. But right. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's debatable. I, I don't think people. I think, I think the people doing this work have sincere intentions. They really do. I mean, I know a lot of uh, people doing this kind of work. And it's not like there's an evil plot out there, a sinister plot. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, um, there's sort of a, a political naivete around, around these programs as well. Mm-hmm. We also have to look at the financial interest and stakes involved, too. Um, I think in the corporate mindfulness world, there, there's probably some good money to be made uh, doing these sorts of trainings. and uh, Corporate sponsors are the ones that are uh, funding it. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think those are some issues that uh, have to, haven't really been looked at as well. Now, um, I guess before we get more into that critique of that manifestation mindfulness, I, I want to back up and again ask you, to what extent does this critique apply to, say, for example, the Insight Meditation Society version of mindfulness, if we can talk about such a thing. Because when I've gone to retreats there, I mean, I assume people have by now gathered that yours is a critique from the left. When I go to retreats there, there's a pretty lefty vibe. I mean, you look at the bumper stickers on the cars, you know, a lot of eco-consciousness stuff. And, and, And even in the Dharma talks, there's definitely a kind of undercurrent of complaint about what the capitalist system, it's not, it's not a lot of explicit diatribes, but there's a sense that, you know, modern technology is oppressive. The the system we live in encourages materialism. So that's a place that um, on the one hand is, is, is teaching people how to cope with the system we have, but 
is very much not a bunch of right wingers trying to uphold capitalism <laughs> as we know it. Oh no, no, no! I I was talking to somebody the other day actually uh, that uh, did a long retreat over here at Spirit Rock, and mm-hmm. uh, they were saying exactly what you were saying. Uh, a lot of concerns for uh, social justice and uh, you know, the climate uh, crisis and uh, yeah i i agree totally no i think i don't think my critique uh, pertains what uh, whatsoever to insight meditation uh, society or uh, of, of that world i'm more the critique is more aimed at the commodification mm-hmm. and the instrument instrumentalizing of mindfulness uh okay. which uh, uh you know i think tich not han uh i have a friend who's in the uh, order of interbeing and he said that, you know, when, when Thich Nhat Hanh saw, you know, the mindfulness uh, craze going, going wild, he gathered some of his students around and said, now listen to me. I want you to hear this. Mindfulness is not a tool. And uh, I don't think IMS sees mindfulness as a tool. It's part of a path. Uh, it's part of it a path. It is part of a path. It is supposed to bring benefits. I mean, they talk about handling anxiety and stuff. But, but, but the retreats I've been on have, Try to put that in something of a Buddhist philosophical context. I mean, we, when you see anxiety, you're observing its impermanence yeah. and, and it's passing away and, and so on. Um, and, and, and certainly there's an emphasis on the path. They use the word liberation. I'm not, uh, you know, at least some of the teachers there use the term on retreats. Um, so, I, so I, I mean, one reason I ask is because you use the term in the book, the mindfulness movement, which mm-hmm. could be construed as a pretty broad gauged. Uh, but I do think your your focus is probably more on some aspects of the movement than others. Now, another one, uh, in, in a way, intermediate be- between these two things, the kind of IMS spirit rock on the one hand and kind of corporations using mindfulness to turn their workers into happier and more productive people. Um, there is, uh, you know, let's talk about John Kabat-Zinn uh, himself, who had a huge impact by developing mindfulness-based stress reduction. That's probably the reason uh, mindfulness is taught in a number of schools because they don't think of it as Buddhist, right? You, there's a, you could not get mindfulness into many public schools in America if you, if you called it Buddhist, right? Oh, so, absolutely not. Uh, uh, so, so talk about the parts of that you approve of, the parts of that you don't. I mean, on the one hand, he, well, you know, you, you're very familiar with him. You write about him. Why, why don't you talk about, him and that whole thing. Well, first, you're absolutely right. I mean, John Kabat-Zinn, um, there was an article that came out calling him the father of mindfulness, the father of mon- modern mindfulness. So he's had a tremendous influence in the field. Um, and uh, he's been prominent in, in uh, uh, disseminating mindfulness, as you said, to public schools, uh, uh, to other sectors, government. And, you know, he's been very active in the United Kingdom with uh, the mindfulness initiative, the mindful nation initiative. Uh, so, um, but I think it goes to uh, the issue is to open it up to secular audiences. Um, I think John Kabat-Zinn uh, saw the utilitarian value of mindfulness for therapeutic purposes, and uh, but in order to open it up to secular audiences, um, he had to kind of mystify its origins, so to speak if you want to use that word, and selectively extracts certain kind of simple practices and uh, basically then uh, kind of uh, 
cleanse any kind of Buddhist association, affiliation, or language in uh, in packaging uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction. It started out in the hospital clinic. Mm-hmm. And um, for a period of time, uh, there were a tremendous amount of studies are being done on the science, science of MPSR and efficacy studies. Uh, so by mainstreaming it, uh, I think once it got out of the hospital, though, um, there's something about it being in a hospital um, that has very uh, salutary uh, benefits. It's, uh, you know, the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. Those sorts of ethics are sort of containing it in some ways for, uh, in, you know, it's, well, once it got out of the hospital clinic, I think then uh, and into the marketplace where the market ethos takes over, uh, and then it becomes even further instrumentalized, then it could be put to use. And I think this is one of the key things is um, the instrumentalizing of mindfulness uh, for personal gain. Uh, uh, Barry Majid, who wrote the book, uh, What's Wrong with Mindfulness? And uh, uh, he talks about the four gain approach uh, to mindfulness. Um, And... So once it's commodified and instrumentalized, then, you know, the forces of uh, uh, capitalism uh, then can, mm-hmm. uh, you know, spiritual entrepreneurs is, is one way of thinking about it. You know, it's used in Wall Street for uh, stock traders, and now it's being used in the military. Uh, and so all sorts of other kinds of uh, uses uh, come into play. Mm-hmm. Um, and meditation apps is another example of how it's been uh, simplified and commodified. Uh, 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 does that address some of your question? I'm yeah. Not I, sure. I, and, I don't and know I guess, if we're getting it. Yeah. I guess you've been asked the obvious kind of follow-ups, uh, uh, which is, I mean, one of them being, is this so bad in a couple of senses? I mean, first, uh, like, it's true that, when you address workplace stress, the employees are less likely to rise up and rebel. On the other hand, they probably weren't going to do that in an effective way anyway. And, and, you know, it's, it's like, it's like in general, if I have a headache because like my neighbor is making so much noise with, you know, in some way that they shouldn't be. Well, on the one hand, they shouldn't be. On the other hand, you wouldn't deny me the aspirin, right? You'd say, yeah, deal with a problem right now. You can't, you know, so there's that, but and but then there's also, I mean, don't you think some of the people who are exposed to this in a therapeutic context wind up following it deeper? I'm sure that happens, right? In, in fact, I heard uh, you did a thing with Vincent Horn, a Buddhist geek, some time ago, and I and he was re- re- recounting an incident where he went to this Wisdom 2.0 uh, conference in Silicon Valley which is kind of in a way the epicenter of what you're complaining about, I would say the wisdom 2.0 conference. And, yeah. uh, and he said he uh, met some people who had started meditating in the corporate context and then it led them to quit their jobs. So yeah. I've heard that anecdote. That's a common anecdote. Um, yeah. yeah. But again, it, it puts it on the atomized uh, action of atomized individuals. Um, I, I remember uh, asking uh, uh, Meng who, uh, Chade Meng Tan, who was uh the spearhead between uh, behind uh, the Google uh, corporate mindfulness program. He came the to guy me. whose title was Jolly Good Fellow. Jolly Good Fellow. Yeah. I, I met he, him. I met him at Google. Yeah, he's a nice guy. 
Yeah, no, he's a really nice guy. I've been down to Google a few times and um, he came to one of my workshops uh, at a, uh, the Mind and Life conference in Boston. We had a, a chat afterwards and uh, uh, or he, I raised the question, well, if, if your top talent at Google as a result of taking your mi- a mindfulness course, if they all started quitting, what do you think the, the management would do with your program if their exit interviews Mm-hmm. said well the reason we're quitting because we took this mindfulness program and <laughs> well they shut it down <laughs> probably I, I don't know i i'm just but, but 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 okay but separate from that it is certainly possible that some people in google um wind up following it and become becoming very serious practitioners become conversant in the buddhist texts yeah. uh, practice a more full-bodied version of mindfulness and they may choose to continue to work at Google. I wouldn't say that that means they're like bad people, you know. Um, yeah. And I wouldn't say my goal in life is to get everybody to quit all their jobs. So, I, I mean, you know, uh, in other words, can't the secular Buddhism be a gateway drug for, I mean, secular mindfulness for some people to, to a, 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 a more authentically Buddhist, Buddhist uh, path? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I I, I agree with you. Uh, um, one of the issues, though, uh, that you brought up about uh, wh- whether or not mindfulness could be uh, brought into public schools, for example, that's that's a hotly contested area right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, Not as hotly as it would be if they were calling a Buddhist. Well, yeah, but Candy Gunther Brown, I don't know if you're familiar with her book. She no. just came out with a book called Debating Mindfulness and Yoga in Public Schools. Uh, just came out. Hmm. Uh, and... Uh, she makes the case that it, exactly what you're saying, that it is a gateway uh, and that it actually has a uh, uh, influence in terms of turning people towards uh, more of a Buddhist sensibility. And therefore you cannot call it secular. So she makes that argument. I don't know if I agree with that, um, but that's a whole nother can of worms. Mm. Uh, but I, I think going back to the point you made, uh, I don't think we're trying to vilify anyone here. Uh, I'm just seeing that uh, the individualized approach to mindfulness and the message that stress is all inside your head, I think that's sending the wrong message. I don't think that rhetoric is actually uh, useful or of service to people in the corporate world. I think it's a faulty diagnosis. And then, yeah, go ahead. Well, I actually have a question about that phrase. You do use that phrase in, in the book. You write that, you know, one of your problems is with this idea of, I mean, here's a, here's a, you, you, at one point you're referring to neoliberal mindfulness uh, with its idea that, quote, the source of people's problems is found in their heads. Well, in a certain sense, isn't a fundamental idea of Buddhism that your problems are in your heads? Isn't the, the, the Buddha's very first sermon after his enlightenment saying, if you will change your relationship to the things that cause you suffering, you will cease to suffer. It's a mental adjustment, right? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, but we're talking 2,600 years ago uh, before we were living in this kind of cutthroat capitalist uh, economy. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not uh, having a, a kind of a uh, uh, privileging of the social and political environment. It's two extremes, I think. You know, Buddhism, uh, the, its track record has been focused on individual personal salvation. Now, you can make the argument that other forms uh, or other traditions like the Mahayana tradition of Buddhism 
has a greater social vision, right, of of uh, that I will not become awakened until all sentient beings right, become Right, the awakened. bodhisattva who could Bodhisa- have enlightenment and descend into nirvana or ascend into nirvana, but chooses to go around saving other souls or whatever. Yeah, right. Um, but I think the focus on individual personal salvation, which has been a domain of Western Buddhism and Buddhism, Buddhist history, is insufficient now to deal with suffering because suffering now is not just privatized. Yes, I mean, come on, if I overreact, I have to take responsibility. You know, I've caused someone to suffer. But what I'm saying is that this discourse of stress has gone too far in the direction of individualizing social problems. And so there's a disconnect between uh, our sense of personal distress and the larger political social environment. There's a disconnect. There's a historical and political and economic disconnect. Uh, And I think that that is what's problematic, and that's what my critique is. I'm not critiquing mindfulness as a practice per se. I'm critiquing really the rhetoric, the over-exaggerated claims, uh, the commodification, uh, the sort of biological reductionism that's inherent in the rhetoric of stress, and that uh, we can have... uh, other, you know, look at look at mindfulness as a curriculum, right? If you look at corporate mindfulness or other sorts of mindfulness programs, they're usually eight weeks or, you know, some variant on that. But they're a pedagogy. They're an educational curriculum. And there's no reason to say why that curriculum couldn't be expanded in some ways to, to factor in these other explanatory ways of looking at stress and suffering. And that's, to me, it's, uh, you know, we're still at the infancy of mindfulness in, in society. And and it's it doesn't have to be limited to these uh, highly individualistic uh, uh, frameworks. Okay. So um, you said earlier that uh, you would like to see dimensions such as ethics and wisdom be more consistently a part of the teaching. Is that uh, fair to say? Yeah, but I think there's even other alternative ways of uh, of uh, reclaiming mindfulness uh, for more socially engaged purposes. I think this is where we may have something in common because I've been reading your work on mindful uh, resistance, mm. and uh, so it doesn't necessarily. I'm not. I, you know, I think there's ways. Well, let of me pause and yeah, plug that newsletter. It's you can okay. subscribe at mindfulresistance.net. Thank you for the opportunity. Now, now proceed. But I. Again, I don't think mindfulness resistance will have the power that it could have if it's left to atomized individuals to have like individualized acts of mindful resistance. That's definitely uh, useful. Um, but I'm more interested in, in, in sort of commu- building more foundations for community and community formation, mm-hmm. more like uh, collective uh, forms of mindfulness, or I'm, I'm now kind of calling it civic mindfulness, that that sort of marries together uh, the impulse uh, for personal uh, transformation and, uh, with uh, uh, social and political change. But I don't think that's going to happen by leaving it to uh, just individuals on their own. So, so, you, so um, you're not, so, so you're touching in a way, although I think not only on, but in a, what's called socially engaged Buddhism. I mean, one thing you'd like to see happen is more activism 
of the kind you yourself would choose, which as we said, is a certain, you know, certain ideological orientation. Um, mm-hmm. but, but, um, and, and to some extent, activism traditionally tends to involve social connection. So that's part of it. But right. is there more that you'd like to see? I mean, for example, a funny thing about retreats is you're with all these people, but because you're silent, you go exactly. It, 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 it's it's and yet I, I I'm sure there's a place that, for that. There's a place for that, yeah, sure. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's one of the criticisms. Uh, like David Loy, a uh, uh, friend of mine, makes is that, uh, yeah, yeah, we're sitting in silence, and uh, you know, I think that there's there's other possibilities for uh, like revisioning sanghas, revisioning Buddhist centers. Um, right now, uh, socially engaged Buddhism is such a small such a small slice of what's going on. But uh, interestingly, uh, Bob, I, I, I talked to uh, the director of the Insight Meditation uh, New York, uh, the New York Insight Meditation Center uh, a couple weeks ago. And uh, he was telling me, Tom Carling, he was telling me that, uh, that they're really getting behind the extinction rebellion. Mm-hmm. And that uh, some of the, the key thinkers uh, the thought leaders in the Extinction Rebellion explicitly and consciously have pulled in mindfulness as part of their uh, spiritual force, as part of their spiritual force. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they're teaming up. And I, I, I think that's kind of what I'm talking about. Uh, it, you know, how can we – but coming back to the point about wanting to bring in wisdom again, I think there is something to that. Because if we're going to have this more radical mindfulness, it has to have this kind of expansive, non-dual sense of uh, melting the separation between self and others and self and the environment. And so it's not just about becoming calm or peaceful, uh, but it's really kind of going to the root of uh, delusion and, and cutting through that. On on the same token, the causes of suffering have become institutionalized. In other words, the the three root mental poisons in in Buddhist teachings, uh, greed, ill will, and delusion, which are uh, within our own uh, psychophysical uh, complex, have now kind of taken on a life of their own in society. And so we're we're facing a, a collective spiritual crisis in a way. That, that suffering is now much more complex in terms of how it's been amplified uh, by the systemic and structural and global forces that it's really hard to just go on a retreat while everything else is on fire. Although, and, yeah, I, yeah, I will say, um, you know, just to, first of all, to connect what you just said to something you said earlier, um, earlier, you referred to anatta, the idea, the not self or no self doctrine. And just now you said it's important that people sense more connection with them and other humans. These two things are related in the sense that um, ha- having a, a kind of a full on not self experience would tend to entail a sense that the borders of yourself are 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 more at a minimum more permeable in a sense than you might have imagined or, or they out and out dissolve. And I will say, you know, on retreat is where I've had an inkling of that experience just sitting there and it would and, and it would not have happened if it hadn't been a silent retreat, right? Yeah. I it, agree. It, it, where 
suddenly you you feel that like uh, the 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 bird you hear singing that that bird song is no less a part of you than the tingling in your foot. That's a, it's an actual apprehension. Now people can argue about whether it's the delusion or it's overcoming a delusion, depending on where you stand on Buddhist philosophy. But it's interesting, first of all, because it shows how with Buddhism the metaphysics is connected to the ethics, right? I mean, the idea is that a, 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 a correct view of the metaphysical reality, which is that the self is in some sense illusory, leads you toward the ethical truths that other beings are as important as, as you or, or, or their welfare is intertwined with yours or however you want to put it. Um, so I want to make sure people understand the connection between those uh, two things. And also, you know, say that if it hadn't been for retreat, uh, you know, I wouldn't have had that, a sense of what that means. But anyway, back to whatever you want to say about Buddhist activism or anything. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I think you're making a great point that, uh, yeah, there's a place where I think deep meditation, silent retreats. Um, there are other ways of, of uh, opening up uh, the self that no, don't necessarily require uh, silent retreats, though. I mean, that, we don't have to really go in that direction. But definitely, the one's personal well-being is inseparable, intimately uh, interdependent with the well-being of every other sentient being, including a biosphere. I mean, we are like, you know, we're inheritors of the Western ideal, uh, Western Enlightenment ideal, a story of separation and domination of nature, and. Um, I think I think mindfulness has great potential in terms of uh, being radicalized, and, and that doesn't necessarily mean left, but I think it means uh, opening up critical inquiry and dialogue. Uh, and uh, I think we're seeing bits and pieces of this emerging in the Buddhist uh, world, in the Western Buddhist world, but uh, it has a long way to go, and uh, I hope that happens. Okay, I wanted to, um, you know, by the way, while, while we're on, uh, well, I'll, I'll never mind. Let, let me get, I, we don't have a lot of time left. So let me get to this wisdom question just a little more. You, you did talk about ethics and wisdom. Um, how would you, what, what exactly do you mean by wisdom kind of as distinguished from ethics? I, I mean, a person can live their own life just wisely, right, in the sense of, minimizing their own suffering, right? So you could have a, a view of wisdom that uh, seems to me doesn't necessarily lead to what or entail what you seem to want in terms of a more selfless, socially connected Buddhism. So maybe you mean something a little, what, what exactly do you mean by wisdom? What do I mean by wisdom? Hmm. Well, you know, I think it does go back to the story of the self, uh, this, the, the, as the central actor uh, in uh, in the story we tell, uh, it's like a fundamental story that's unquestioned. And, and uh, as long as that story is operating uh, in a uh, uh, unquestioning manner, uh, then we will keep perpetuating the sense that we're separate. Uh, we're separate from others. Uh, so the whole idea of, of the, the the twin. The twin uh, wings, uh, wisdom and compassion, are uh, go together. So, um, compassion from a Buddhist uh, point of view, and we're talking kind of universal compassion, uh, doesn't really blossom and open up until uh, wisdom or prajna is a is a term they use 
uh, sees through the delusion of separation and uh, 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 permanence. And uh, so I think that we need ways that may not necessarily have to adhere uh, to traditional Buddhist teachings. Is there a way that we can translate these sort of powerful practices in ways that uh, have a much more secular appeal? Uh, because as we all know, now, you know, Buddhist, uh, not everybody's going to become a Buddhist and there's no reason why they need to. Um, uh, so I, I, I guess that's kind of what I'm uh, searching for or struggling with uh, mm-hmm. is how to make that cultural translation uh, uh, to the West that uh, doesn't, it makes it accessible just like MBSR was made accessible, just like uh, mindfulness. We see it right now has been made accessible. So, I think that's kind of the edge. Uh, I don't know how to do that, or, or I'm just starting to think about it. Uh, but I think we need kind of creative inquiry or critical inquiry. Maybe it's not necessarily uh, uh, all kind of focused on meditation. Uh, you know, if you look at the Tibetan tradition, they have what's called analytical meditation, which uh, is very rigorous in terms of uh uh, kind of using uh, the intellect to uh, open up the, the limits of uh, language and uh, the sense of uh, uh, the assumptions that are, uh, you know, very kind of, uh, what's the word, uh, pre-conscious or uh, very primordial. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so just, you know, our sense of embodiment, our sense of identity is sort of limited into a uh, particular space and time that we're consolidating. The self is kind of a consolidation of the vastness of, of space and time. And, and that knowledge is sort of uh, then constricted uh, to uh, the self as the one who knows. And so other ways of knowing are then uh, uh, kind of uh, not, uh, not, they're not activated. Uh, and this is another interesting thing, Bob. I know we're going off in many different tangents. Now, but feel free. I think that what happens um, with the modernization of Buddhism, um, you know, the whole idea that we're throwing away the so-called cultural baggage, <laughs> we're also throwing away other ways of knowing uh, without knowing it. Uh, you know, well, what, I, what, do you, what do you mean by that? Well, okay, I'm going in territory. I never Are thought you I would to get go. weird on us. Yeah, I am. Okay. Okay. So. But, you know, I'm not the only one. Um, you know, I think what, um, if, if you go back to like, uh, uh, you know, uh, many texts, it's not just Tibetan Buddhism, even in the Theravada tradition, there are, there are knowing capacities that uh, mm. the cities, right? Um, you're talking about paranormal, ter- paranormal abilities. But if you think about the Bodhisattva and you think about skillful means, well, we're talking about higher ways of knowing that can really help. It may go beyond just the subject-object dualistic ways of knowing. And I think that uh, that's where Buddhist modernism may have uh, kind of thrown away too much so this possibilities. Is so this is interesting because, I mean, on the one hand, um, you know, it's common to distinguish between, quote, religious Buddhism and you, you might say secular, you might just say naturalistic Buddhism, a term I use. Right. Um, uh, meaning that if you're a naturalistic Buddhist, 
you're not going to get into rebirth. You, you may you may not be yeah, saying it's not happening. You don't know. You're agnostic, whatever. It's just not part of the program. Naturalistic Buddhism right. is about how we can, what we can do with the human mind in its environment it's in and, and draw on skills articulated in Buddhist texts and wisdom articulated in Buddhist texts and so on. Uh, there's that distinction. Uh, but I, I think most people... <clears throat> Who are who, who do are, are familiar with that distinction aren't so familiar with there being a um, with paranormal um, you know like I don't know whether you mean mind reading or reading the future telling the future or what um, I mean of course in the in the idea of rebirth what one piece of evidence you hear from people who believe in rebirth is they say well there are these people who recall things from previous lives that they couldn't possibly recall. Otherwise, so there's that, but you're talking about something a little different. And are you, just to be clear, are you saying that things we think of as paranormal and, and I don't know if you mean mind reading or what, but are actually authentically grounded in, in, in ancient Buddhism as well. And that's just not so appreciated. Right. Yeah, they are. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, I think we've all had experiences maybe called synchronicity or premonition. Uh, well, weird, weird uh, coincidence. Weird, everyone has had a weird coincidence. coincidence and, and, okay. Right. And, um, and they may or may not interpret them as defying, uh, you know, conventional materialistic uh, explanation. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think this is where the Buddhist science dialogue has gone, gone astray, too, because it's almost, these things are off limits, kind of off the table. Um, so it's like the Westerners have already defined the agenda through scientific materialist assumptions. Well, and I should say, I think the Dalai Lama has bought into that to some extent. Yeah. Would you not say? I mean, uh, as part of a, I, I, I'm not going to get yeah. into what the reason may be, but but he he he, he you know, uh, right? I mean, he's saying if you can't prove it, uh, I forget exactly what he says. It's like if you can't. If it doesn't with test this, the, the, if it doesn't withstand the test of science, we'll abandon it. Or there's that kind of spirit to it, and that would mean, you know, there's a whole lot in traditional Buddhism, as I thought was part of his own <laughs> tradition, that would have to be abandoned if you couldn't scientifically well, verify. It. Well, he uses the oracle, you know, he uses he, Tibetan oracle uh, for uh, for con- consulting uh, decisions. Well, there you go. So I don't think he's that much of a Western scientific materialist as people make him out to be. No, but he but, but he does talk like one sometimes, right? Possibly, yeah. Um, but where was I going with this? So anyway, I mean, we don't even have to talk about paranormal. I mean, we could talk about creativity, too. I mean, creativity is uh, another kind of form of, of knowing which uh, could be cultivated uh, for these kinds of purposes. Uh, so I don't think we have to be restricted just to... Uh, yeah. There's a, there's a really good academic, David Presty. I wish I could remember the name of the book he just came out with a few years ago. But it was, a, it was all about this, about how uh, this side of uh, Buddhism has been uh, kind of uh, been pushed to the side. And uh, some very, very uh, prominent people in that book that are trying to bring this back. Prominent in what realm? These are Buddhist teachers or what? Uh, scientists, philosophers. It's a very inter- interdis- interdisciplinary book. I wish I could remember that. I, I do think there, there are uh, meditation teachers in America who had deep experience in Asia who have ideas uh, about maybe rebirth or whatever that they don't actually talk about a lot because um, because it might uh, I don't know uh, it might impede their teaching in, in, with some audience. Oh yeah, oh it's called Mind Beyond Brain: Buddhism, Science, and the Paranormal. David Presty. It's a mm-hmm. really good thin little book, 
Columbia University Press. Hmm. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. we went off some deep tangents here. That's pretty deep. Uh, let me see if there's <laughs> anything. Well, okay, let's just close with something super uh, materialistic and conventional. Let's get back to capitalism. Um, Uh-oh. Uh, let me just re- uh, read you a couple of things you say and then um, uh, make sure I understand you. Um, so uh, let's see. One is, uh, okay, so you're talking about, uh, you know, people are stressed out in a capitalist environment, corporate environment, whatever. Once the pain goes away, you write, it is business as usual. Even if individuals become nicer people, the corporate agenda of maximizing profits does not change. Um, so I take it that your view is um, we want to get corporations to actually change the way they conduct business. I mean, there is a kind of alternative left view, which is that, hey, you know, corporations going to going to do what they do, but they should be very severely and, and pervasively regulated to limit the amount of damage they can do. But you're never going to get rid of the profit motive. But your view, and, and I think this inspires uh, your you know, your book and your view of mindfulness is that, no, we want, uh, we want corporations to actually change the way they do business. We want them guided uh, by a different ethical framework, a more humane consciousness and so on. Is that fair? That's very fair. Absolutely. Okay. Then we can move on to the second thing you write about capitalism. (laughs) Leaders in the mindfulness movement believe that capitalism and spirituality can be reconciled. Now, does that mean that you, I guess that means that in some sense you don't think they can be reconciled, but I, I doubt you mean that because we're in a capitalist system, no one can pursue an authentic spirituality. I mean, it's possible to be spiritual in a capitalist country probably. So uh, maybe you should just elaborate on what you, what you mean by that. Well, there's this trendy thing called conscious capitalism. Um, I think it's really uh but, you know, spirituality is also the kind of the well-being initiatives that we're seeing in corporations. So, you know, they're, they're well-being initiatives. Um, so it's the idea that uh, spirituality and productivity is a win-win. Uh, and therefore, corporations are not really responsible for change, therefore. Uh, again, it goes right back to placing responsibility on the individual, adjusting to the conditions rather than changing them. Um, and, you know, Asian spiritualities have, have – it's not just mindfulness. This, this was done with Zen back in the 70s, and it was done with Taoism. We had a slew of books on Zen, Zen and the workplace and the Tao of leadership. Uh, this is just the latest iteration of that in a way. Um, uh, so, 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 so I'm skeptical of, of that. Yeah. So you're saying that, 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 a, that a, quote, spirituality molded – by the capitalist system is probably not going to be an authentic spirituality. Well, yeah, it gets molded and it's, it's uh, redirected for corporate interest and it's uh, highly individualistic. So it, uh, it, uh, it's a way of uh, stifling uh, employee dissent. It's a way of, uh, uh, you know, the idea of creating happy workers creates more productivity. That, mm-hmm. that rhetoric's been going on since the 1930s. Mm-hmm. There's nothing new. Okay. So final, final question. This isn't about capitalism, but it just sprung to mind. The, um, you know, you, I, 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 uh, you've written and talked um, about what I think you see as a, mis, a, mis, a mistaken rendering 
of Buddhism as being in some fundamental sense, kind of a science of the mind or, a, but, but, you know, it seems to me that even the very old, some very old Buddhist texts are very astute about human psychology. And in fact, some basic ideas like how finely intertwined affect and cognition are, how finely intertwined affect and perception are, uh, modern psychology is in a way only now catching up with. Is that, is it mistaken to think that actually in, in the long history of Buddhism, there's been a lot of, I mean, it hasn't been science strictly speaking because it's been based on meditative introspection or introspection, phenomenology, whatever you want to call it. But don't you think there, there have been some very astute uh, insights into the workings of, of the mind that have been part of the Buddhist program pretty broadly? Yeah, from a first person uh, experience point of view, and then systematizing those first person experiences. Um, and uh, creating topologies and, and all sort of maps and everything. Yeah, ab- absolutely. But I think when you say science, there's, there's some implications there from a Western point of view. Um, I think it was a phenomenology of mind. I don't know if it's a science of mind. Right. It has been a phenomenology, strictly speaking. Yeah. But, but, but I would say it, it accords with some scientific findings. Yeah, radical empiricism, sort of. Like William James kind of... Uh, uh, kind of approach. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So thank you, Ron. Uh, the book is McMindfulness, How Mindfulness Became the New Capitalist Spirituality by Ronald Purser, who never goes by Ronald except on the covers of books. Um, <laughs> is there any place else people can find your stuff? Are you on Twitter or anything? Do you have a website? or? Yeah, I have a, uh, I have a, a website, ronpurser.com. That's probably mm-hmm. the easiest. It'll, it'll take you to all my publications as well. Okay. So thanks very much. Uh, The book came out very recently. Good luck with it. Thank you, Bob. Enjoyed it. My pleasure. Before you go, a quick message from the Suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, So taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.